All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor. And uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called God With Us. We are um, looking at the text to help prepare our hearts for Christmas and for the season. And so go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be going over to Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chair around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 807. Matthew chapter 1. All right, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17. So if you guys have noticed, this is a genealogy. It's a lot of names. Wish me luck. All right, starting in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The word of the Lord. I did it. <laughs> All right, so Merry Christmas, you guys. Merry Christmas. We are just a couple weeks away from Christmas. Next week, we're going to be back here on Sunday morning. So I'll see all y'all next, next Sunday morning. Um, and then the week after that, Christmas falls on Christmas. Uh, Christmas falls on Sunday morning, and so we're going to have two uh, Christmas Eve services: one at five and one at six thirty. They're going to be candlelight services. We are going to make the most of the acoustics of this room. We're going to have fun singing and opening the Word and worshiping Jesus and, and just getting ready for Christmas. On Christmas morning, we're not going to be having services. Our deacons um, serve very, very diligently over the course of the entire year to help make sure that this gathering works well. And it takes a ton of volunteers to make it happen. And, and as we were thinking about Christmas and, and the work that our deacons are putting in and the fact that their teams would, would pretty much be empty, um, you know, the reality is we thought, what a gift to give our deacons to be able to let them uh, move through this season without the stress of having to pull off a service 
let them stay home and, and, and worship Jesus and celebrate with their families. And so we're not having services on Christmas morning. It's not because we hate Jesus, okay? And I know there are rumors out there that those sorts of things happen. No, we love Jesus, um, but we also love our deacons. And, um, and we believe that, that this is just a great way to give a gift to them so that they can celebrate with their families, okay? So we'll see you next week and then on Christmas Eve. All right, so a genealogy. <coughs> I mean, holy cow, um, that's a long list of names, right? It's uh, unusual. Why did we read them all? Well, one good reason is because they're there, right? I mean, if my name was in the Bible, I'd want you to read it, you know? I'm guessing if yours was there, you'd want me to read it too, right? So, so it honors the names. It honors the lives that are represented there, but, but there's a lot more to it than that as well. You ever gotten a present? that wasn't what it seemed like they, whoever gave it to you just very creatively disguised what, what the present was. When, when my kids were little, I used to get a kick out of um, taking a small present and wrapping it in a bigger box and a bigger box and a bigger box. And, and usually I would like tape it up with packing tape and things like that. So it wasn't just in a box. It was incredibly difficult to open each one. And I'm sure I was way more entertained by that than they were. Um, in fact, I thought I was being funny. I think I was probably just being annoying. But that's a dad thing to do, and dads get to do dad things. And so I did. Um, here's the thing. When we look at our genealogy this morning, we, we're looking at a gift in an unlikely package. It's very easy to just skim over this. In fact, I'm guessing most of the time we read this. You read the first name, you read the last name, and you move on. Um, because there's a lot here. Right? This is not a normal passage to read out loud, and I don't remember the last time I've heard an entire sermon coming out of a genealogy. Um, but here's the thing, you guys. This unusual package contains something incredible. There's a, a promise here to beat all promises. And what's even better is who it is promised to. And so we're going to dig into it. So let's talk, first of all, about the genealogy itself. Um, why would Matthew start out his gospel with this long list of names, right? All of these was the father of, was the father of, was the father of. If you had a King James Bible, it was all the begats, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, right? Why would, why would Matthew start here? The other gospel writers, I mean, they jumped right in with the story, all right? Why start with a big list of names like this? Well, it helps if you understand why the gospels were written, there are four gospel accounts in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each wrote a historical narrative of Jesus' life, and they're called the Gospels, and they're named after their authors. And, uh, and each one had a specific purpose, right? Mark was writing to uh, a Roman audience, a Latin audience, and, and it's reflected in the way he writes. Mark's is the shortest of the Gospels. He writes in very short sentences. He moves very, very quickly from action point to action point. In fact, one of the, one of the key words of that entire gospel is the word suddenly, this idea that it's just moving suddenly to suddenly to suddenly. Luke was raised in a Greek-speaking home, and he was very f- uh, familiar with the, the Greek world, and, and he wrote his gospel uh, to a Greek audience to help make the story um, applicable and understandable to them. John John was very familiar with the world of the uh, unbelieving Gentile. He understood the philosophy and the religions of the current day. And in fact, when you read the Gospel of John, 
It is a very persuasive document. It speaks well to us today because our culture is actually very similar in some ways to the streams, the, the cultural steam streams he was writing into at that time. Now, Matthew, Matthew is a Jew, and, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He is writing to a, a group of, of Israelites and culturally Jewish people to, to explain to them the message of Jesus, and he's doing it in a way that is sensitive to, to their needs and, and what they expect. So he starts with a genealogy because it would be essential for any Jewish reader. One of the first questions they're going to ask is, is how does he fit in? You know, who is this guy? And, and that question, who is this guy, is, is answered by, by what's his pedigree, right? Who came before him? Now, we do the same thing. Now, we do it a little bit differently, right? If, you, if you've ever spent any time in St. Louis and met new people there, it's the strangest thing in the world. You get into a conversation with a new person, and before long, they're going to ask you a simple question. They're going to ask you, where did you go to high school? That is weird, okay? When I moved here from California, I'm like, what? But Fort Bragg High School in Northern California? Oh, 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 you know. No, I thought you were from around here. The reason they ask that is you learn a lot about somebody by finding out where they went to high school in St. Louis. You can find out who their people were. You can find out what their background was. You can find out what socioeconomic class they came from. You can probably even figure out which, which racial heritage they share because St. Louis is such a segregated city, right? Down in the South, they do it their own way. Down in the South, they'll just ask you, you know, who are your people? Who are your people, right? And what they're saying is who are you connected to? What names do I know? What, what family are you connected with? Because that helps me understand you. That helps me put you in a context that, that I can understand where you came from, what has shaped you, and where you're going. The genealogy at the beginning of Matthew defines how Jesus fits in, who his people were, who his background was. And for the Jewish people especially, because their history is so wrapped up with God's actions with the world, they're, they're also asking, how do you fit in to God's work in the world? How do you fit in to God's redemptive plan? So for us, when we look at the genealogy, it's also good news. Obviously, most of us aren't coming and, and asking the same questions that culturally Jewish people were. That's not our world. But it does speak powerfully to our cultural need as well. You know what the genealogy tells us? It tells us that this isn't fiction. It tells us that, that Matthew didn't just make this up. It's not just a story. It's actually rooted in history. Uh, some of you may be skeptical. I mean, you may be like, Steve, I get it, but what would keep Matthew from just making it up, right? If I wanted to make something up, that's what I would do, right? Any good story roots its main character in a history. Any good story creates a backstory, right? You, you find out, like, you know, Harry Potter... He's, he's set in England, right? It's a real place. And, and, and he goes to King's Cross, a, a real place, right? So, so why wouldn't Matthew just make this stuff up? Well, that argument is an example of anachronism. What? Anachronism. Uh, it's our vocabulary word for the day. I'm a good English teacher, and I love to teach you new vocabulary words. Uh, so anachronism. Anachronism <laughs> is when you have something that doesn't fit in the time period that you place it, right? So I saw a quote on Facebook that said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. And it was attributed to Abraham Lincoln, okay? 
humorous because it illustrates its own point, right? But that's anachronistic. Why? Because Abraham Lincoln didn't have the internet, right? (laughs) That's anachronistic. You're placing something in that time period that is incongruent with it. It doesn't belong there, right? Any of you see the movie Troy, the one back in the day with Brad Pitt, right, when he played Achilles? I see a lot of blank faces. I know I'm old, but okay, so I'm seeing some nods. All right, so, so Brad Pitt played Achilles, th- this mythical figure from history who was the hero who defeated Hector and was in the Battle of Troy. And, and there's this one scene, man, where they kind of pan up and they're showing Achilles and all of his glory and rippling muscles. And in the sky, in the background, you see an airplane. Like, for real, it's in the movie. That's anachronistic right? That, that, is, that doesn't belong in the time period. That tells us that obviously this didn't actually happen in the time of Troy, right? That, 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 that tells us that, that it doesn't fit. You guys, listen, um, a modern novel, a modern novel, modern storytelling depends on this device called um, the suspension of disbelief. It's something we're all familiar with. Um, and it's very common to modern storytelling, but it is modern. And, and the way it works is this. Every time you read a book, you have a, an agreement with the author. If you create a realistic enough story with a real, realistic enough background, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and pretend it's true. So I can actually enter into the story. Every time we go to a movie, every time we read a novel, That is so fundamental to our understanding of storytelling that we just assume this is the way it's always been, that there's always been this implicit agreement between the reader and the writer, between the one who hears the story and the one who tells the story. That's anachronistic because this is actually modern storytelling device. You don't go to ancient history and find examples of modern novels. They're not there because that form of storytelling simply didn't exist. During the time of Jesus, there were two primary forms of literature. Writing was very expensive and very difficult. And so there tended to be two things, history and mythology. Now, history was when, obviously, people wrote down what occurred around them in the attempt to preserve it for future generations. There were, in fact, historians during this period of time, people that were aware that the things that were happening around them were of of historical import, and they wanted to record those things uh, to keep track of them. There were also myth-tellers. Now, myth-tellers, myth had a very specific set of expectations. Myth-tellers didn't try to create realistic stories. They had superhuman heroes like Achilles, They had superhuman enemies that were facing superhuman odds, like like Odysseus going up against the Cyclops, right? It It was not designed to be realistic. And in fact, when you read it, its original language, there was nothing about it that was actually meant to give you this sense of suspended disbelief. It wasn't meant to usher you into an actual experience. It was a very different kind of writing. Here's the thing, you guys. Here's the point. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, there are no mythic elements here. It simply doesn't read like myth. It reads like history. And what that tells us is that not only did Matthew intend it as history, but according to the genres that existed at that time, it was history. 
unless you're going to come up with some excuse or some explanation that can explain how they created a form of literature that didn't exist for thousands of years after their time. It is good news because when we look at this, we see that it reads like history, and the only logical reason is that it because it is. So you guys, we often treat the Christmas story like a fairy tale. Something to be repeated, a warm story that kind of, you know, we enjoy putting out our little nativity scenes and, and kind of telling the stories, and, and it gives us this, this little rhythm to our... But we don't really, at times, take it seriously. Definitely not culturally. You guys, this is told in vivid detail because it is historical detail. So the genealogy is good news to us because it tells us that it was real history. That it was, in fact, real And that's really good news because it it contains incredible news. You guys, every name in this list is a story. In fact, one of the fun things I would encourage you to do is actually look at the names and find their stories in the Old Testament and read about them. Find out who these people were and how all of these names fit together. It's it's pretty fascinating. But while every name on this list um, is important, they're not all of equal importance. Matthew clearly emphasizes certain names as more important than others. In fact, just look at, at uh, verse 1. In verse 1, he says, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right at the beginning, he emphasizes the names of Abraham and David. Now, for the Jewish reader, there would have been an obvious reason why he did this. Um, Abraham and David had received two of the greatest covenants ever made in redemptive history. A covenant is a solemn agreement between God and man. And there are only a handful of them in the Bible. And two of the most important were made with Abraham and David. In fact, those agreements are called by their names, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Abraham, in Genesis 15, was promised by God that he would have a son. And you're like, that's great. (laughs) What's so big about that? It wasn't just that he was going to have a son. It was what that son would do. That son was going to become the father of an incredible nation whose descendants were as numerous as the sands of the seashore and the stars of heaven. They were going to receive an eternal inheritance. And not only that, that son was going to become a blessing to the entire world. So whatever he did, whatever he said, was going to impact not just local, not just regional, but global human existence. He would be a blessing to the entire world. David was the greatest king of Israel. The Israelites looked back to David with great pride, and it was a, it was a period of, of unity and, 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 and uh, peace in the nation. David Um, helped bring uh, prosperity to the nation. He was given a promise that he would have a son who would reign on the throne forever, that he would have an everlasting reign, an everlasting kingdom over uh, a world or a reign of peace. Matthew is saying, guys, that those covenants, those incredible promises were fulfilled in Jesus. That, that he was the embodiment of the fulfillment of those promises. Now, now, Abraham had a son, right? He had a son. His son's name was Isaac. And Isaac was a great guy. 
It's a good name, right? Name my son Isaac. It's a good name. Um, Isaac ended up having a son, um, a couple of them, but one of them, Jacob. And, and Jacob was renamed Israel and, and became the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the Jews. He had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, here's the thing. Isaac had a lot of descendants, but they're not innumerable. They're not like the sands of the seashore or the stars of heaven. And the Jewish nation has had an impact in the world, but, but I, I don't think we can say that, that the Jewish nation specifically has been the kind of blessing to the entire world that has completely transformed and freed it into the inheritance of this an eternal uh, kingdom. So while he had a son... The promise wasn't fulfilled. David had a son. David had a son named Solomon. And Solomon had a, an incredible reign, and, and it was a period of peace, and, 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 and Solomon died. <laughs> he didn't sit on the throne forever. He had a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam um, didn't do so well. Rehoboam ended up dividing the kingdom. He ended up with the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and they stayed divided until they were carried off. Israel to Assyria and, and Judah into Babylon, into captivity. It was not the everlasting throne that was promised to David. See, Jesus was the true son of Abraham. Not only was he a descendant of Abraham, he was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He was the true son of David. Not only was he the descendant of David, but the true fulfillment of David. And what that means is that these global promises of incredible importance were embodied in this tiny little baby. That in this package, this tiny little child was the fulfillment of the grand promises of God to redeem, restore, and usher in a kingdom of peace. You know all those desires you have for a life of prosperity? a life of peace, a life of purpose and fulfillment, all the hopes you had and the fears you had going into the last election. You know, you, if I, your hope in one candidate, your absolute fear of the other, I'm guessing that no matter what side of the aisle you're on, that describes, you know. But here's the thing. Those desires would only be fulfilled in one person because the promise of an everlasting kingdom of peace a reign of justice and, and, and a balancing of the scales, the bringing in of a blessing so radical and so extreme that it reaches to the entire experience of human existence was embodied in this baby. He was the fulfillment of the transcendent promises of God. God promised blessing. And Matthew's saying, look, that's it right there. Jesus. So we see that this is an incredible message of good news. There is an incredible promise that has been given that is now being fulfilled in the birth of Christ. But this is where the genealogy gets even better. Because it's not just a great promise. <laughs> what makes it awesome is who it's promised to. There's something really unique about this genealogy. When we read through it, honestly, we're not going to notice it. 
Um, because as Westerners, there are things in here that, that we're going to look at and go, well, of course, right? Of course. But there are a few things that when the Jewish readers were reading through this, the original Jewish, especially the, the, the Jewish religious leaders who were examining the pedigree of Jesus to find out if he could actually claim to be the Messiah, there were a few things in this, this genealogy that, that would have been like, you know, like when, well, you guys don't know. Kind of like a record. Some of you don't even know what I'm, that's amazing to me. But, but back in the day, there were these things called records. They were these flat discs that had grooves cut into them, and you would put this needle on it, and it would spin, and as it spun, that needle would go through those grooves and actually play music through these things called big speakers instead of the, and, and every once in a while, if, if something got jerked, like you could take that and slide that needle across, and it made this sound, like it was, it was like this sudden breaking in. That's what this genealogy would feel like to those Jewish leaders. Like they'd be going along going, oh yeah, okay, okay, whoa like this sound that just got their attention. Now, we don't notice it because we're not from the same culture. We're not offended by the same things, but I want you to take a look. You guys grab your Bibles. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Let me see if I can highlight this for you. In verse 3, and Judah, uh, who was the, the son of Jacob, one of the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, by Tamar. Whoa. By who? Tamar. He talks about the mom. Some of y'all are like, well, of course he talks about the mom, right? Why wouldn't he, right? She did all the work, right? There should be more moms in here, right? Every mom should be listed in here. All right, during this period of time in this culture, your pedigree was measured by the patriarchal line that went before you. You were measured by your dad and your dad's dad and your dad's dad's dad. Women during this period of time didn't even have the authority to go into a court of law and be a credible witness. If they witnessed something, if something occurred, all the men in the vicinity would be called in to give their witness. None of the women would be. Because during this period of time, women were not given the same level of credibility. And for Matthew to list Tamar in this list as a witness of the birth of Christ, as, as a testimony to the genealogy of the Messiah, <laughs> would have definitely gotten their attention. Right? And he doesn't stop there, right? In verse 5, he goes on. In verse 5, he's, he says, And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, another woman. And then he goes on, And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And then he jumped down to verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who was Bathsheba. And then you drop all the way down to verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called the Christ. See, Matthew is breaking tradition in a really provocative way. Like, I love this. It's kind of subversive. Like, 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 he knew as he laid out this case, he was trying to communicate to Jewish people to communicate where they would understand and validate and say, look, Jesus really is the Messiah. He has a claim to, to the promises of Abraham and David. Let me show you how this works. But even as he's doing it, he's like, let me poke your pride. Let me throw something in here that's going to be a bit of a curveball for you. See how you chew on that a little bit. You guys, he was writing his gospel to a Jewish audience, and he knew that they would want to know Jesus' pedigree. 
but he takes the opportunity to make a statement in the process. Jesus, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of David, wasn't just the product of the cultural heroes of their time. He didn't just claim the impressive parts of his family line. He valued the ones everyone else ignored. He valued the ones that they discredited. So the women are listed here as authoritative witnesses to the heritage and pedigree of Christ. And what's even better is, is Matthew picked women who wouldn't have necessarily been respected by the Jewish leaders. It's not just that they're women, but, but let me explain a little bit to you, like Tamar, the first name that's listed. Tamar had a life of rejection and abuse and injustice. Tamar's first two husbands, guys named Ur and Onan, were such losers, God had to kill them. Like, like, go read it. Like, that actually happened. She was married to Ur, and he was such a loser. God's like, mm, you're done, okay? And then Onan, who was worse, mm, you're done. So then she's left exposed because in this culture, if you're not married as a woman, you don't have an inheritance. You don't have a heritage, especially if you don't have children. There's no, no societal protection for you. So she goes to her father-in-law. It's his job to protect her, and he rejects her. Judah will not protect her. Judah doesn't step in to do what is right or to enact justice on her behalf. So Tamar does something really provocative. In order to protect herself, she finds out that, that, that Judah is traveling to a, foreign, a far field, and, and so she dresses up like a prostitute so that he might encounter her on the way. And he takes the bait. And she becomes pregnant, and she has twins. And so by having those children, she is able to take hold of the societal protection that had been denied her. That's a crazy story. That is messy stuff. And yet here is Tamar. Matthew's saying Tamar is a witness to the pedigree of Christ. Tamar is a mother of Jesus. The next one listed, Rahab. We discover Rahab living in the city of Jericho when we meet her. And her occupation is a prostitute. She lives in the city wall outside of her own city, an outcast in her own city as a prostitute. And when the spies come in to spy out the land, she hides them. And they remember that and they protect her when they siege the city. And, and she becomes part of uh, Israel as a, as a proselyte. But she's still a Canaanite. She's not a Jewish woman. So not only is she not just, she's just, not just a woman... She's a non-Jewish woman. She's a, a Canaanite, and yet she marries and has a child named Boaz. And here she is. She stands as a witness to the pedigree of Christ. She stands as a mother of Jesus. And then the next woman mentioned Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She came from the land of Moab. She married a Jewish man and in Moab, and, and he ended up dying there, and she was left destitute. She could have gone back to her own culture. She could have gone back to her own people. Her story is told in the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's a great story. I would encourage you to read it. She ends up following her mother-in-law back to Israel, and she becomes a faithful companion to her, and she ends up marrying a man named Boaz, Rahab's son. 
And she has a son. And, and here is Ruth standing as a witness to the pedigree of Christ, as a mother of Jesus. The next woman mentioned isn't mentioned by name. It's Bathsheba. And the reason she's not mentioned by name is because Matthew is throwing kind of a double punch here. Not only is he mentioning Bathsheba, but he's mentioning how she got there, right? What ended up happening is David, this great king, the one that everyone looked up to, decided one time not to go to war. He decided to stay home, and he got bored, and he saw Bathsheba and found her beautiful. So he kidnapped her, and he made her his wife and had a son, uh, eventually Solomon. But in order to cover his own shame, he betrayed Uriah, her husband. Uriah was part of his army. So he sent Uriah and his army into battle, and he instructed his leaders when they got into the thick of the battle, they would all withdraw and leave Uriah exposed so that he might die. And he did. So here is Bathsheba standing as a witness to the pedigree of Christ. Here is Bathsheba standing as a mother of Jesus. And then the last woman named is Mary. Mary was a teenager with no pedigree when she got married. Mary was somebody that they would have not esteemed in the slightest. In fact, they would have despised her because she was pregnant when she got married. And they would have assumed that she had behaved immorally and improperly in that culture. And here's Mary standing as a witness to the pedigree of Christ, as a mother of Jesus. So why is this such good news to us? Why is it good news that Matthew didn't just give a normal genealogy where he followed the patriarchal lines? Why is it good news that he included these details that would, as the the Jewish leaders were reading it, would tweak them, would challenge their pride? Why is that good news for us? Because the genealogy reminds us that Jesus came for the outsider. The people that human culture deems disposable and unworthy, disregarded. (laughs) These are Jesus' people. Who are your people? The outsiders. He came from people who didn't have their acts together. He came from people who had, had suffered great injustice or had committed great injustice. He came from people who made mistakes. He came from people who didn't get it all right. He came from people who weren't the moral hybrid people of the culture. He came from broken people. And he came to broken people. For those who don't have their acts together, for those who have failed, for those whose lives are jacked up. The mothers of Jesus stand as a testimony to us that we're not left out and that we are not forgotten. See, Jesus didn't come for the people who have it all together to affirm them and praise them. He didn't come to those who are high on the moral ladder to say, you're good people, I can make you better. See, he came to the weak and needy. He came to those who were desperate. He came to those who were outside, who were hurting, who were lonely, who, who were isolated, who were in pain. He came from broken people 
to come to broken people. And that means that the promise of Jesus, remember all the promises that were embedded in that little baby, those incredible, cosmic, transcendent promises that were, that were being fulfilled in that little baby, the inheritance of an eternal kingdom, of a land of flourishing and of peace and of joy, a kingdom of, of righteousness and balance and flourishing are fulfilled as we become citizens of that kingdom, as we believe in the king of that kingdom. This genealogy stands as a declaration that God has broken in to human history to meet us where we most desperately needed to be met. And it tells us that grace is available. But here's the catch, you guys. Grace is available to anybody who is desperately in need of grace. That's the story that explains why Matthew would not only give the genealogy, but give it in a way that he would provoke the proud. He wasn't doing it because he was a smart aleck. He wasn't doing it because he just liked to get a rise out of people. He was doing it because the most loving thing you can do to pride is poke it so that it's an invitation to humility. You don't pet someone's pride. (laughs) That is not love. Because as you do that, you're simply helping them insulate themselves from their need for grace. You poke the pride to invite humility because in humility, you know you need grace. He came as the embodiment of grace for those that are desperate for grace. And the irony is that there were those who were the religious elite, the models of self-control, the models of doctrinal purity, the models of having everything right. And they were the ones standing outside of the kingdom, unable to comprehend the king because they didn't see their need. So the witnesses that point us to Jesus are not perfect. They needed grace, and they knew it. And the good news was that it came to them in the form of this baby who would live the life they should have lived and die the death they deserved to die. He would die for their transgressions that he might rise for their justification. Listen, you guys. These mothers of Jesus stand today inviting you to see their son. These mothers of Jesus stand today giving witness to you that you are not outside the invitation of grace, nor are you outside of the need for grace. The mothers of Jesus stand delivering the good news. They didn't show up to give good advice how to make good people better. They didn't show up giving good advice how to make moral people more moral, how to make successful people more successful. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't advice, it is news. It is the declaration that the king has arrived and the promise of God has been fulfilled. News isn't followed, news is believed. And the call of the mothers of Jesus is to believe in Jesus. If you're outside, if you're lonely, if you're isolated, if you're frustrated, if you're fearful, 
Jesus is the embodiment of the transcendent promises of God. And the only thing you need to receive grace is the need for grace. If you will come in the humility of one who receives instead of one who performs. If you come in the humility of one who believes and trusts instead of works and attempts to self-improve. You see in that baby the beginning of a righteous reign of a new beginning and a new start and a revolutionary new way of approaching life. As we wrap up, I want to um, not only give you the invitation of the gospel, but also give you an invitation to a practical outworking of the gospel. We are going to be taking a special offering today. You guys, we have a group of people that are part of our body, part of our family, who are outsiders to our experience of worship. Because they can't navigate stairs, they are not able to join the family in the celebration of communion and worship and singing and listening to the Word. And this is something we believe God is calling us to address, that this is an issue that is of such great importance that it needs to be the primary focus of this next season. Many of us may not have even noticed they were excluded And that's because it's often hard to see the needs of others when we don't share those needs. So it's important for us to highlight that need and place it in front of us so that we can work forward uh, for this important goal. Now, our best solution at this point is the installation of an elevator. We're investigating, but we believe that's the course we're going to have to take. An elevator is expensive. For us to install an elevator is going to cost between $200,000 and $250,000. That's a lot of money. But I absolutely believe God can provide it through the generosity of his people. We already have around $40,000 set aside for this project. We were able to get that money simply by managing our budget well and taking part of our reserve and setting it aside specifically as we saw this need getting nearer. But for us to actually accomplish this, it's going to require all of us to share in the sacrifice. And all of us able to sacrifice together will be able to celebrate together as we address and meet this need and celebrate as a family. And so we're going to take an offering today um, as one step toward that goal. If you came today and you weren't prepared, we've been announcing this for the last three weeks, but I know many of you either weren't in the service or, or for whatever reason weren't able to be prepared, that's fine. If you want to be involved and and you want to let us know so that we can include it in the count, there are those worship response cards around you. Just grab one of those and write um, your name and how much you intend to give to this offering, and we'll include that in the count. If you want to give online, you absolutely can do that. You can go to our website. There's a giving link. You can also go on the city. Uh, There's a giving link there as well. It may be more easier and, and more convenient for you to do it that way. If you do, though, I would love it if you would let us know. Obviously, put a note on the gift so that we know it's not a general offering gift. But also, let us know in the offering today. Drop, drop a note and let us know how much you're giving online. Uh, or send me an email. So again, we can include those numbers when we report back to the body and let you all know how much we have raised together. Here's the thing, you guys. I believe God calls us to generosity continually. <laughs> right? That's the experience of grace. It awakens within you an experience of gratitude, of contentment, of joy. And a grateful heart 
is a generous heart because we don't look to our things to meet our needs or to mark our identity. In fact, we move into this place where the more freely we receive grace, the more generous we become with our lives and our things and our time and our money because we realize that we simply cannot outgive God. And as we move forward in faith, we discover more powerfully and more realistically, more, more tangibly how faithful he is. So let's give sacrificially. Let's give joyfully. Let's give knowing that we are caring for our family to the glory of God. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and um, we're going to take our offering. We are going to share communion. We'll do it um, after the offering. But let me pray for us now uh, as we get ready for the offering. Father, I thank you that you are a God who loves the outsider that you're not looking for those who seem strong compared to the people around them or intelligent compared to the people around them or, or moral compared to the people around them. You're not impressed by the way we measure up to each other because the reality is we all fall short of the glory of God. But even though you see that so clearly, even though you see us in our shame, you see us in our guilt, you see us when we insult and victimize others and you see the injustices we have endured. You do not define us by what we've done and you do not define us by what's been done to us. You see us and you love us and you call us to that place of humility where we're not looking to prove ourselves or make ourselves measure up or fix ourselves. We just trust that Jesus is enough. I pray, Lord, that you would free us into a deeper, more profoundly joyful experience of that grace. That we would be a people marked by gratitude. Just marked by that joyful contentment of knowing that we are loved by the sovereign God of the universe, the creator of all things, and that in Jesus we have the fulfillment of the promises that our souls so deeply long for. Free us, Lord, as we take this offering to generosity. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to be generous, even as your word tells us that you multiply the seed to the sower so that those who are generous might be more generous, that you would, you would enable us, Lord, to move into generosity, to give freely and joyfully to this need, and that you would provide the way. Lord, we want to honor you. We want to care for um, those in our body that you call us to care for. And so we pray that you will bless this offering to this end. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this church. And we thank you for this opportunity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our ushers will come forward and take our offering.